Hi, Gary here. This episode of the Unlock Moment is very special, very moving, very powerful. Listening back, I was amazed at Anthony and Kel's richness of thought, their perspective, their wisdom at such a young age, still only in their 20s. Anthony and Kel Matsena have been through a huge amount in their lives, being uprooted from their home in Zimbabwe, terrible family tragedy, and their experience of oppression have shaped their creative identity as breakthrough choreographers and performers, but so has the warm community that welcomed and embraced them in South Wales, the creative industry that has given them a huge platform, and the audiences who are wowed by their work. I've known the brothers a while and knew some of their story before we talked, but I have rarely had a conversation that has left me so affected. If you're like me, you'll be struck by how the tough times could so easily have pushed them to a really dark place, and instead have inspired them to speak through love, joy, and empowerment in their creative voice. With most of these podcasts, we edit them down to give you just the best bits of the conversation. Here, it's so compelling, we just couldn't take anything out. Sit back and listen in to this incredible interview with the extraordinary Anthony and Kel Matsena. I started university um, September, I think it was September 1st or September 2nd at the place. Um, really, really big chain, London, big city, uh, adjusted first year. Um, and a few months into my first year, on November 20th, uh, two older brothers were murdered in South Africa, um, uh, Andrew and, and Alexander. Um, and that completely just flipped. Um, not just my life, uh, the, the life of uh, our whole family. It shook us up and I had to leave school and go back home. Um, and there was something that was really uh, difficult to to understand. I distinctly remember a conversation. Uh, my My brother, Andrew, who used to mentor me a lot, yeah, we, we went for a walk uh, uh, the night before we caught the, uh, the flight um, at midnight. And he gave me all these words of wisdom that I still carry with me today. But he said something to me that in that moment removed the dreams of what new life we're going to. And he put a drop of realism and he said, I hope that we'll get to play another one-on-one basketball match together because that was our sport. We play basketball all the time. But if we don't, don't ever stop playing just because I can't see you again. I, I made the decision to keep going, to, to go back to school, and knowing that the answer was, was in me keep, keeping going and not stopping. And doing that awakened something in me because I couldn't face school uh, or, or dance or art in the same way I was looking at it, where I was looking for the industry to give me answers and to give me opportunities and to create a voice for me. So something changed in me, something that had was always bubbling, this sense of like this character of mine who always wanted to create. So what happened is the pot just boiled over and I had to speak and I had to speak through through my movement and the first piece I made after this was 
this I must understand, which was me trying to understand the grief that was going on in me. People loved the piece. It was gut-wrenching. It was in your face. And in that moment, I realized the power of creativity, but also the power I had um, to make work. And that was an incredible feeling that something so tragic and terrible had budded also something so meaningful and beautiful that their memory wasn't just something that was soured and something that is, you know, kind of made me bitter and sour about the world, but something that had given me a kind of boost into something, uh, into, into creativity, into composition, into choreography, but more importantly, into activism, into seeing the world and, and realizing that the world isn't as nice as maybe you think it is. So unveiling uh, the truths of society and delivering that to, to an audience is something that is now is now a part of me. When you're dealing with work like this, uh, you need a lot of heart, uh, a lot of vulnerability, a lot of support, a lot of laughter as well. You know, it's in our nature. We like to enjoy ourselves as human beings, especially when we're doing something we love, um, while still also balancing that we are dealing with a very serious topic and honoring the people and the stories we're telling. Uh, but in that, we have to protect ourselves as people and um, approach it with heart, with love, with joy, with laughter. If we just make it an all-black cast, our audience members, we're going to invite all the people we know and we're going to have a mainly black audience and we're all just sat there, just agreeing with each other, which does nothing. <laughs> it really does nothing. So we wanted that cast to be diverse. We wanted a super diverse audience um, as well as that because... We live in a society and these issues affect us all. They're not individual. You know, how you, you think about the black community or about uh, the tension between young people and the police, that is not exclusive to one person. It affects everyone. And we need everyone to be involved in these conversations. Um, and we need that audience to be diverse. So we really loved it uh, at the end of the show that you'd see people going at each other about oh no but that shouldn't have been oh but that was a bit much for me and oh no i love that and th that's really what it's about bringing different minds together but i would say know that no matter how how dire and how nasty or how um how dark a hole you find yourself in know that you you make you make your way out of it not because you're brilliant and you're doing it by yourself but because of the people around you trust in them ask for help ask them to lend you a hand they, they'll come to your saving and remember the last thing that the traumatized are unpredictable because they know they can survive and you are unpredictable because you know you can survive never forget that my name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach and author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life, and you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, 
how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlocked Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlocked Moment podcast. The phrase emerging stars is often bandied about in the world of dance, theatre and film, but in the case of Anthony and Kel Matsena, could not be more appropriate. Their powerful mix of contemporary dance and spoken word is taking audiences by storm, and they brought their latest piece, Shades of Blue, referencing oppression in the black community in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, to the world-renowned Sadler's Wells Theatre here in London to rave reviews. But their message is much more than this. It's a message of love, joy, empowerment, and community that I know they will bring to life throughout this conversation. I've never met anyone quite like them, and I've been working hard to bring them to you on the Unlock Moment for quite a while. Theirs is an extraordinary journey, from the streets of Zimbabwe to Swansea in Wales, the gymnastics studio, achieving places in prestigious dance and acting schools, and now bringing their own message through choreography and performance to great acclaim. They were featured recently in a dedicated BBC documentary about their lives entitled Brothers in Dance. All of this, and they're still only in their 20s. This is a very special episode of the Unlock Moment, and I know it's one that will stay with you for a long time. Sit back and listen to this incredible story. It's my great privilege to be bringing it to you. So without further ado, Anthony and Kel, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, Anthony here. Good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, Cal here. Uh, pleasure to be on the show. So Anthony, start out by telling us a little bit about growing up in Zimbabwe in the late 90s, early 2000. What, what was that like for, for you? What was the country like at that time? Uh, the, the country was flourishing. It was an incredible place. Um, the, the economy um, from the outside looked like it was stable. People were were able to advance in careers in their lives, save money, uh, take their children to extraordinary schools, not just in Zimbabwe, but around the world. Uh, dreams were being met and fulfilled. Um, and there was a lot of openness in, in what you could be as well. There were a lot of artists coming up. The, the music scene was incredible. Um, a lot of sports stars were were coming out of Zimbabwe because there was a lot of support in that in that area. Uh, but personally, I fondly remember the gatherings, uh, the gatherings of our family, friends, people who were friends. Uh, but I always thought they were family, and only found out we weren't even related. But just sheer joy of community, uh, the amount of aunties, uncles, nephews, nieces, um, great aunts, great uncles grandparents it was just epic epic music epic times uh epic dancing it was it was a whole lot of fun a whole lot of joy i really have the best kind of memories there and they're really engraved in my memory despite being so young i remember them like they were yesterday and school was a blast uh the schooling system was really 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 great uh i i woke up every day like, you know, like a rabbit just springed out of bed and I was ready to go. I was always the first one up and uh, yeah, I loved it. I really, I really did love it. And Kel, paint a picture of your, your family. You had a large family. Oh yes, large, large family. I mean, um, 
my mother she has nine mm. siblings well she she had nine siblings and uh, my father had i think six siblings so you imagine they all had kids those kids had kids so it was literally at the about of birthdays mm. and parties it was like every weekend you you were going to someone's house and you'd have all your cousins there you'd just be running around because um Zimbabwe is a, is, a, is a country with a lot of space. So regardless of, you know, if you have a big house or a small house, there's always so much garden space. And I just remember just being with like 10, 15 of my cousins just running around playing tag, hide and seek, all this wonderful stuff. So we're completely surrounded by love, uh, by family, uh, by joy and, and by celebration, celebration of life. Um, it was really engraved in us from a very young age. So, Kel, you, you and Anthony were two of five brothers. Yes, yes. Myself and Anthony are two of five, two of the youngest, actually. Um, so, yes, we feel like uh, our parents really raised our oldest brothers and then our oldest brothers raised myself and Anthony. So there's just all this knowledge, me being the youngest as well, uh, and getting to see four people who are quite similar to me in the way they think and approach life and Gaining all that experience, uh, I think they were very generous and open as brothers uh, in how much they shared about their experiences. So kind of feel like I've lived their lives as well, which is really cool. And what was the span of ages across the five of you? Um, there was an average uh, a space of three, three and a half years between us. So um, Arnold is four years older than me, uh, Andrew. So it goes Alexander, oldest, Andrew, Arnold. Uh, me, Anthony, and then Cal, whose uh, his birth name was Amkelani. So five A's. Our parents. Were... I was going to say there, there's got to be an A in there somewhere. <laughs> there's a lot of A's in there. So yeah, between Alex and Andrew, I believe it was four years, and then between Andrew and Arnold, it was three years, and then between Arnold and me, four years, then between Cal and um, Cal and myself is two and a half years. So it works out to about three years between. Yeah. And what kind of things did your parents do? What were they What were they doing in Zimbabwe? What was their, their jobs? Now, my dad, he studied accountancy and math at school, um, at university. So he started out as an accountant um, and then went into managing um, um, Zupco, which was uh, the national um, bus company, and became managing director there. And that was kind of his path, working for the different headquarters around Zimbabwe. Um, and my mom, she started off as secretary and then started working for the WHO, um, for their malaria, uh, division, which was the headquarters for malaria in, in Africa. So she did a lot of work there, did a lot of, uh, also translating. Um, and yeah, she was very, very good at shorthand. And talk to me about what started to change and how, how that led you to, to moving over to the UK. Um, if, 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 first of all, it was, uh, the economy was starting to crash, you know, um, I vividly remember, uh, getting, uh, getting on the, the plane here and having 40 million, which was 10, which was, uh, I had four $10 million notes. Um, and that was enough to buy me a loaf of bread. Um, but by the next day, it wasn't enough to buy me a loaf of bread. So the inflation was just through the roof. I think at, uh, at many times the inflation in Zimbabwe was that highest inflation um in the world um so lots of things were going terribly um and then the the un decided to move the who uh, main headquarters to the drc 
um, um, we didn't want to live with the DRC. Um, so my mom was out of work there um, and she was really interested in, in a life in nursing because she's always cared, wanted to care for people. Um, so coming to the UK was now the option because her twin sister was here studying to be a nurse. Um, and then uh, at the company my dad was at, there were some shady businesses um, going down in, in a lot of the executives were trying to cut corners by buying inferior buses um, from China instead of from India. And they eventually got caught and sent to jail. And they pushed my father out of the company uh, because he wouldn't agree to do it. Um, and then after that, my dad um, owned an, an, an abattoir, which was, which was uh, a joy. The amount of times I would go to school with Bill Tug uh, in my pocket, just snacking throughout the day, it was for, for somebody who's in a family of a lot of meat lovers, it was really great. But um, when, when Mugabe started to push out the white farmers um, and give his generals and people in the army a land that they had no right owning, uh, they came and claimed uh, the abattoir and the land uh, that my dad and his friend owned. So there was, there was no form of um, any sort of income that was coming in. It was, do we, do we, do we, push and fight our way through this struggle and hope that better days are coming. But so far, the trend around other African countries, as well as what's happened before, it seems like it was going to get much, much worse for much longer before it was even going to get better. And in 2008, when we came, it was just before the general elections and the political landscape was was really shaky. I'd never seen um, uh, ZANU-PF's um, people you know driving around in pickup trucks with like machine guns in their hand there was a lot of propaganda which was making its way into the uh, suburban areas and it was just very frightening and i think our parents just wanted us to have a fair shot at this game of life so a lot of our family were here so it seemed like the the obvious and most sensible choice was to relocate and immigrate uh, to the uk and how old were you two at that time when you when you came over to Wales? Oh, um, I had just turned eleven, uh, I believe. Um, and then Anthony, you were thirteen, yeah. going on fourteen. Yeah, yeah. But not all of you were able to to come over together. No, no. At the time, uh, not all of us were able to to come down to the UK. Um, basically, it was myself, um, Anthony, and our older brother Arnold, who's third in line. Um, we were able to come over to the UK uh, because we're all under the age of 18. Um, and because our mother was already here, then it's it's very easy to get a visa and to you know join your mother because you're still under the care because you're not yet fully an adult. But for Alexander and Andrew, they were over the age of 18. Um, so much harder for people 18 and older to get visas uh, from Zimbabwe still now and definitely still back then. Uh, because of what was going on with the country, there was a massive influx of people who were just um, migrating um, to the UK and Canada and all those sorts of countries. Um, so if you apply for a visa, even if it was a holiday visa, unless you had a lot of money in your bank, um, unless you're already studying in Zimbabwe, um, or you had uh, very wealthy relatives over here in the UK, uh, they didn't trust that you were not going to land and, and emigrate straight away. Um, and on none of those three, uh, we had, um, basically, so we were in the process of basically trying to get them their visas to come over to the UK. Um, but it was much quicker for us three. 
And we have a very international audience here on the Unlock Moment. So for those who don't know where Swansea is, paint a little picture of two young kids from Zimbabwe landing in Swansea and what, what that was like. It, it was surprisingly not as shocking because we had come over here for a holiday in 2006. And we had spent, um, I believe, six weeks in Swansea. But I was speaking to a friend last night and she was talking about the fact that um, living in London is now a complete different experience to when she came over for holiday because you just see the nice bit. So the shock was, you know, coming here on holiday, staying in a beautiful aunt's house to then uh, being immigrants and staying in like council houses. And it was like, whoa, what's this world? And almost feeling, not feeling, but knowing you're a second class citizen, knowing you're not looked at um, as an equal to the rest of society, that was mental. But uh, all of that aside, Swansea is a beautiful place. Um, just uh, the scenery, the beach, the woodlands, but more importantly, the people. Um, when we arrived at our house, uh, when the home office put us in, in, in this house in Ravenhill, I, would, I wouldn't even say an hour passed before and uh, the street was knocking on our door and welcoming, welcoming us, saying, hey, how are you guys doing? You know, and introducing themselves. I just vividly remember uh, our friends like Ria, Kara, and a few other people, like four or five of them, standing in our bare living room talking to us. They'd be like, what, do you, you want to go out and play? Um, but yes, I think that sense of community was not lost in that moment. I thought, oh, we might be okay. Uh, but yes, yeah, Swansea's a, it's it's strange, but it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And as much as um, you know, all the greenery and the scenery um, makes it a beautiful city. It's as well as the people. Um, I gotta hand it to them. Uh, speaking to other friends who've grown up in other parts in the UK, we were spoiled by the community we had. They supported us. They paid for classes. They did so many things for us that. I don't think we'd be able um, to be standing, sitting here on this podcast if it wasn't for them. Uh, yeah. Where did the love of movement and dance and performance begin for you two? In terms of movement, uh, dance, um, entertaining people and all of that, that's always been part of our family and our culture. Uh, with those big family gatherings and stuff, they'd always be music blaring and you know, you'd always have uncles, certain cousins just dancing around the whole time and entertaining each other and having fun. So the idea of movement, the idea of groove, uh, connection with music, that's always been in our family. Um, but in terms of it actually being a thing thing in Zimbabwe, people don't really see it as that. It's just a bit of enjoyment. But a career as a creative is like, whoa, that's, you know, space talk. <laughs> that really doesn't happen. Um, but I think it was our oldest brother, Arnold, who had such a love for performing and the way he pursued it and was resilient um, in um, making a life out of this. Um, I think that was really inspiring. And um, he's he's the one who really uh, first opened the doors for us and we're like, oh, oh, this is an actual career. You can do this like that, like that. So he took us under his wing, mentored us. And then from then on, when I was three, um, when I was uh, living in Swansea, uh, that's when we started training and just eat, sleep, breathe, dance. You know, you, we'd wake up before school, 6 a.m., and we'd be doing the dance drills. Straight back from school, you'd have a ham sandwich, a bit of Hannah Montana on Disney Channel, and then straight back to hours of dance until bedtime. 
Uh, so it just, it became uh, a lifestyle. It became a culture. Later on, became a career. But the, the love for it started from a very young age. So for us, it just feels natural when we hear music and we start moving to it. Um, because it just makes me think of my grandma, my auntie, my uncle, my brothers, uh, cousins, all of that. Anthony, where did it start for you? Yeah, I would, I, I gotta say, it started with, with, uh, with our brothers. I just have these memories of certain, there was, there was this thing on Saturdays, uh, where our brothers, before they would uh, go out to whatever events they were going to, um, at the time, they were like 80, 20, they were at that age of like figuring out life. Um, what they would do around 12 p.m., the, we had these massive speakers, uh, which were in the living room. They would wheel those out to the veranda and they would thump music for like the whole street uh, and it would go on for hours and hours and I had little to no rhythm then and little to no dance moves but I would sit there and just enjoy Andrew Alex Arnold just dancing to dance or reggae hip-hop R&B um, Zimbabwean music, like uh, traditional music, it would just go on and on and on. And I didn't realize that in those moments, I was learning the essence of how to love and enjoy music and dance just for yourself, even without an audience. So those, I think those moments were the, were the, uh, were the moments where things started to, to flicker and to start for me. And because of that, I, I was I was so adamant and I was like, I'm going to learn to dance. So, so I, every day after school, I'd go in the mirror and slowly try and teach myself how to do the wave. And once I conquered the wave, oh, it was game over. It was like, yes, I can do this. <laughs> um, and then the real, real big moment, um, well, the few actually, was Kat and I got to dance to Usher and I think I can't remember which Asha song it was, but it was for a school talent show. Um, and it was in the school assembly hall and the, the stage was quite high. Uh, so you could see everybody. And I remember us just doing this duet. And that was the first time we started a legendary career of du duets. And the, and the whole <laughs> audience erupted. And that feeling, I was like, I, I, I wanted to just bottle it, put it in a little, a little jar and just sip on it from time to time. But I remember, I remember that gave me the confidence to be like, oh, all that time in the bedroom, then to wave and do all of that, it's paid off. I could actually do this. Um, and then uh, I guess, like Cal said, the real moment was coming, was coming here and seeing Arnold pursue the career and seeing that it was financially viable and that you could earn money and that there was a pathway. It wasn't so clear. It wasn't even the pathway we're on now, but there were pathways in terms of dancing. That you know, that for me was a big moment. And the two of you both decided that you wanted to pursue this as, as a professional career and you went, you went to top dance schools, to top acting schools. So what was the point where you figured out this is more than just something I love doing, this is something that I want to make my, my life? Um, for me, I had a, actually had a terrible time during my A-level. So um, during the summer between my AS and A-levels, I'd done pretty well in my AS, so I was looking forward to my A-levels. And I vividly remember this because the London Olympics were on at the time. Um, um, and I all of a sudden got really ill from being super fit, being in gymnastics, dancing, training. I just woke up with a cold, a sore throat, and then over a few days, um, I just deteriorated and, and ended up in hospital. Um, 
at the age of like 18 or whatever it was, really, really fit. And I had this heart condition, uh, acute pericarditis. So I, I remember being in the, I was meant to be in the hospital for two weeks and I was meant to take um, uh, uh, beta blockers and this uh, other drug called Ramipil for the rest of my life. And I was not going to be able to exercise. Long story short is I, I managed to fully recover in a few months. Um, and because I'd missed so much of school because of being ill, I had to go to college. And when I went to college, I decided to take dance as just a supplementary subject. Um, because uh, in, I remember being in the hospital saying, you know, has my life, has my life been stolen from me? Uh, you know, and if, and if, and if I'm going to do this, and if, if, if whoever has shown me the sign that life can be taken away from you so quickly, I need to try and live a life that I want to live. So I vividly remember doing the dance classes and realizing that when I'd go to physics, chemistry, and maths, I didn't have the same joy I had when I was in my, my dance classes at college. And then the biggest moment was when we did, I did National Dance Wales in 2014. I remember in the summer walking through the hallway from the studio to the green room. And it's this specific hallway in Royal Walsh College of Music and Drama where I said, oh, yes, I'm going to do this dance thing. I'm going to apply for dance school. And when I made that conscious decision, because I, that was my first professional experience, dancing from 10 to 6 and creating a work, I was like, if this is what it's going to be like, I am totally sold. So, yeah, but for me, that was the moment I decided to, to go to dance school, but not only go to dance school. I, 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 had, I had only one dance school I wanted to go to, and that was the place, and that's the only place I auditioned. I was like, if I don't get into there, I'm not going anywhere else. That's the only place I want to go. And what was it about place London Contemporary Dance School that that made you so clear that that would that was it for you? Uh, so when I would go watch shows, I'd get the program, or I'd go on different choreographers' website and check the bios of the dancers. And a lot of the companies I wanted to, I found that there was a trend that there was at least one or two people who had gone to the place. With some of the schools, I felt that there are certain companies aesthetically that you'd see them in, but they were they weren't across the whole band of um of of the industry but also uh, the alumni of the place had so many different roles in these companies so you know i started to see that there were a lot more choreographers a lot more different careers you could pursue after that but most importantly um one of my mentors big brothers joseph tunga he had just done a two-week residency with us before we did the three weeks at national dance wales so he had he had just graduated from the place and he'd come to Swansea to make a piece in us. Um, and here I was met with a man who is Afri from African descent, but grown up in Europe, in, in London. He's gone to the place, he's black, and he's making amazing choreography, and he's gone to this school. So for me, it was like, it was kind of like the same beacon of light Arnold had for, for me. I was like, well, I want to live some kind of career or pathway that he's taken. And if the school has looked after him and nurtured that in him, they might be a place for me there. Um, so yeah, that was, uh, that was my thinking at the time. And Kel, for you, you had the dance drive, but also for acting as well. Yeah, so it sort of, uh, it sort of progressed in a few steps for me. Um, I think first off, I was not interested in every dance, not at all. I was like, no, 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 I'm not dancing with my shoes off. I don't know what weird stuff those people do with their toes. No, 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 no. And I was very much into just mainly hip hop and street dance and, you know, these different ideologies, probably because we don't understand each other's worlds that much. But um, 
uh, Anthony was very persistent and he was like, come, come to, come to class, come to contemporary dance. And at that time, we were both in college at the same time because although I was younger because of Anthony's heart condition, we ended up being in the same year at college, which was really cool actually, because we got to study at the same time. But I was just doing the sciences and the maths and I was just focused on that. I wanted to be a chemical engineer and I thought dancing was just something for fun. Um, and then I started going to contemporary classes and I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is really cool. And then I started getting introduced into the way people make work and, and how, how theoretical and academic you could make your physicality. And I was like, wow, I love the theory. I love the academics, but I can bring that into dance. I can use concepts. I can use my knowledge in chemistry to make a contemporary dance piece. I was like, this is amazing. And then I started watching more work. I remember watching Motion House in, in I think it was 2014 in Cardiff, Sherman Theatre. Anthony was like, okay, I need to take the whole family so that you understand what this is. And I watched them do this piece and I was just like, oh my God, I couldn't believe it. And then that's when I was like, okay, contemporary dance can be a thing. And same thing, I did National Youth Dance Wales. Um, and after doing National Youth Dance Wales, I was like, oh, okay living, breathing, dance, living like a dancer, I can do this. Um, and then had to have the conversation with my parents. I was meant to go to uni, uh, like maybe two weeks after I came back from this uh, National Youth Dance World summer course. And then was like, look, guys, I can't, I can't go to uni. I have to pursue dance, um, which was tough at first, you know, being um, from, you know, having African parents and you know, it's definitely not a viable career option for a lot of people back in Africa. So for them, it was quite tough, but uh, they finally got behind it. Um, so I auditioned for London Contemporary Dance School, same time as Anthony. Uh, Love the audition. It was just one of the most fun auditions we've I've ever done and we've done together. And then the letters came through. Uh, Anthony got through and I didn't get through. And oh, I tell you, it was, woo, this little heart of mine just went into a million tiny pieces because suddenly something I'd, it took a while for me to convince myself that I'm going to go to dance school. And then I auditioned and I didn't get in. Um, and that was really tough to deal with. But something very interesting happened there was for, I, I found myself in a place where I was like, okay, so if I'm going to, have time where I'm going to re-audition for dance schools because I'm not going to uni. I might as well use that time to do what I've always wanted to do as well, is is do some drama and do some theatre, uh, f- figure out some acting. Um, so I went and uh, went back for a third year at college, d- finished off my dance, but then picked up English literature, language, uh, and as well a drama and just fell in love with it and rediscovered Shakespeare, rediscovered my love for language. And suddenly it just, you know, when you think you love something and that's just your thing, and then something else comes along that you love just as much. It was, that was what acted was for me. Um, so I applied for dance schools and drama schools and then ended up going to Bristol Albrecht Theatre School, which was just the perfect place for me. You know, from the moment I walked in, it, it I sort of went, wow, this can be a home. This can be a place I can rediscover. This can be a place I can investigate for three years. Uh, so yeah, a, a lot of, steps to get there but uh eventually found the place i was meant to be in i vividly remember your your um selfie outside the the bristolvic theater school and that smile you had i think you still had braces at the time and i just i i, I knew when i saw that photo i was like ah oh, i've lost him to the dark side he's not going to <laughs> best feeling <laughs> it's an amazing articulation of 
you know, when one door closes, another one opens. That, you know, if, if you hadn't been rejected by the place, then maybe that drama thing would never have been unlocked in you, which, and it's interesting now, we'll come and talk to, the, uh, to this later, but it's, it's an integral part of your work together, the, the spoken word that comes through that, that Cal, you, you deliver. So bring us forward, Anthony, to 2015 and, and the thing that happened that started to change your life and your outlook. Yeah, so I started university um, September. I think it was September 1st or September 2nd at the place. Um, really, really big chain. London, big city, uh, adjusted first year. Um, and a few months into my first year, on November 20th, uh, two older brothers were murdered in South Africa, um, uh, Andrew and, and Alexander. Um, and that completely just flipped um, not just my life, uh, the, the life of uh, our whole family. It shook us up, and I had to leave school and go back home. Um, and there was something that was really uh, difficult to to understand and to make a decision for myself. Do I stay at home and grieve for a year and then come back, or do I come back after them? Christmas break and continue onward. Um, and I won't lie to you, most of me wanted to stay because the pain and the and the weight of it, um, of dealing with that with with that tragedy was 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 a lot, was really a lot. And also seeing my family go through it, um, because you know, one thing you don't understand about grief till you suffer a grief that affects a lot of people, you realize that everybody goes about it their own way. And that's so frustrating. And in so many ways, if you don't come to terms with that. But um, I distinctly remember a conversation, uh, my my brother, Andrew, who used to mentor me a lot, he, uh, we, we went for a walk uh, uh, the night before we caught the, uh, the flight um, at midnight. And he gave me all these words of wisdom that I still carry with me today. But he said something to me that, in that moment, um, removed the dreams of what new life we're going to, and put a he he put a drop of realism, and he said, um, "I hope that we'll get to play another one-on-one -on -one basketball um, match together because that was our sport. We play basketball all the time. But if but if we don't, don't ever stop playing just because I can't see you again." Um, and I made that. I, I made the decision to keep going, to to go back to school, and knowing that the answer was was in me keep keeping going and not stopping, and doing that uh, awakened something in me because I couldn't I couldn't face school uh, or, or dance or art in the same way I was looking at it, where I was looking for the industry to give me answers and to give me opportunities and to create a voice for me. A lot of, you know, a lot of dancers say that choreographer speaks to me. I, that's where I want to be. But I couldn't see that and I couldn't feel that in um, around the industry. So something changed in me, something that had was always bubbling, this sense of like um, this this character of mine who always wanted to create. I, I, I vividly remember having disagreements with Arnold when he used to like choreograph for us as a trio. I'm like, no, but we should go this way. Well, you go this way. It's like no, no, we'll go this way. So I, I, I look back at those moments and I laugh and I was like, oh yes, I already had a knack for it. Um. So what happened is the pot just boiled over and I had to speak 
had I had to speak through um, through through my movement. And the first piece I made after this was this I must this I'm I must understand, which was me trying to understand the grief that was going on in me. And uh, this we must understand. So it was a, there was a trio, and then there was a, a version I did with eleven dancers in first year, uh, and we did it at the end of first year. And I know we we do these student platforms at the place, and people enjoy them and they clap. And that was the first time people stood on their feet. As a standard ovation, people loved the piece. It was like a twenty-five minute piece. It was gut wrenching. It was in your face. Um, in that moment, I realized the power of creativity, but also the power I had um, to make work. Um, and that was an incredible, incredible feeling that something so tragic and terrible had budded also something so meaningful and beautiful that their memory wasn't wasn't just something that was soured and something that is, you know, kind of made me bitter and sour about the world, but something that had given me a kind of boost into something, uh, into into creativity, into composition, into choreography, but more importantly, into activism, into seeing the world and, and realizing that the world isn't as nice as it maybe you think it is. So unveiling uh, the truths of society and um, delivering that to to an audience is something that is now is now part of me. Unpack that word activism for me. What, what does that mean for you? Um. Cal better articulated this when he said, "I'm a creative activist," because I, I I'm not I'm not the activist who's on the streets um, shouting. I sign my petitions. I try and do my work, but my I feel as an activist, it's my it's my responsibility as a creativity to keep people aware and to remove the falsehood of what's in front of us and to. Like, I, like I'm repeating myself in terms of saying, unveiling the truths in our world, because we, we we're often trying to kid ourselves and lie to ourselves. So it's a lot of, for me, it's about honesty. It's about honesty about what's going around the world. You can't just switch off your phone. You can't just turn off your TV from it. Um, I try and deliver the stories that maybe the, the people with the, the smallest voices or the quietest voices or the most oppressed voices uh, would want to say. And, and bring forward uh, to an audience. So I think as an activist, that's my role, um, is in highlighting the truths um, in the world, no matter how uncomfortable, no matter how tragic, no matter what they are, we need to confront them in a way that isn't combative, but in a way that breeds understanding and breeds conversation so we can further understand what it is, um, what it is uh, these situations are and our relationship to them and how we can assist them and how we can, I think the power of conversation is everything. You know, if conversation is, oh, is the primary thing that's, um, that is, is the primary thing that sparks uh, change, not violence, not conflict, but conversation. Um, that's how I feel. And Kel, what was going on for you at this time? So, yeah, so at this time in 2015, um, I was now just starting out my third year in college. Um, so yes, I just picked up, um, all the English language and the acting as well as really focusing on the additions for the dad schools. Um, and then this tragic event happened in November and, uh, that was, that was very strange. Um, and having to deal with, with grief that close, um, in the years leading up to that, there'd been quite a bit of grief actually leading that because of what was happening in Zimbabwe, life had become very difficult. 
Um, so I'd been faced with quite a lot of grief at a young age, and it had become almost this ritual about how we get through it. Uh, but it always was a slightly more distant cousin. But then when it's a sibling, um, it was, yeah, I just didn't really know how to digest that. Even when I think back to that time, um, there's so many gaps <laughs> because there was just, it was such, the information was so hard to digest. Um, but what had happened is that I sort of decided uh, to carry on with college as well, just carry on studying, um, focusing up and, and carrying on with the additions. Um, and still being inspired by my brother's memory and how we've been about as a family about, you know, resilience and pushing through. Um, but then what happened is that uh, the first play I really picked up and read and uh, used for all my auditions was uh, Hamlet. Uh, I read that first soliloquy and I remember just my heartstrings just going pang and just being pulled reading that first soliloquy because I don't think I had the language or the understanding to even articulate what I was feeling, uh, which is probably why I was like, oh, just be resilient and carry on through because I just didn't know how to digest this information. And then suddenly here's this dude from, you know, 16th, 17th century England who's written out um, basically what I'm experiencing, um, who had written it out in, in detail, grief and everything. And it was just, it, it provided so much closure for me. I you know sometimes I say it feels like it, it saved me a lot. And I remember seeing a live stream of uh, Papa Esuedu doing Hamlet with the RSC. It was a 2016 production. And it was just unbelievable. And it, it provided so much closure for me. It helped me articulate what I was feeling. And I remember uh, after watching that uh, in our local cinema, just going, wow, if this is what theater could do this is what dance words can do to literally pull me out of this this whole where I, I didn't even understand what was going on around me but suddenly i'm seeing clearer i can articulate things and i was like if i can do this for people then that's really important work that is a really important thing to do um and that's when i set my sights on yeah let's let's carry on with this let's really make this uh, a career and you know to be in a position where uh, we're having that effect on people. Uh, it, it just makes an 18-year-old cow really proud because, um, yeah, that was such an important thing for me. So bring us forward then to the origins of Shades of Blue. So where did that come from? And where, was, where were you in the first moment when you thought, we know this is what we have to put together? Well, um what had happened is sort of March 2020, myself and Anthony, we'd been, we'd started up the company, uh, I think 2017, we had started it up. Um, and we, there was real fuel uh, with the company, you know, we're saying what we needed to say through the work. And then sort of about 2018, 2019, uh, our work in the company sort of slowed down and we started to pursue solo um ventures pretty much and we're finishing off uni all, all this sort of stuff but what happened in march 2020 was because of covid we all just myself all our brothers we just came back to swansea and then just started living together and had to go back to to just ground level it felt like 2008 being in the same house again um and just looking at each other and reclocking in into why we were doing this like oh okay about each other it's about lifting each other's voices it's about 
uh, lifting the voices which aren't being heard because I was off doing a, a theater show uh, that was touring the UK and off to US. Uh, Anthony was doing commissions all over the UK. Um, so things were going really great, but then we'd sort of lost sight of what we wanted to do together as a family. Um, but what happened in May 2020 with the murder of George Floyd, may he rest in peace. Um, it was, I know personally for me, I don't know about for you, uh, Anthony, I, I sort of uh, avoided the video for a few days uh, because in the lead up to that, there was so much stuff going on and you had Ahmaud Aubrey, you had all the stuff going on in New York and Manhattan, you know, them going into black neighborhoods and just terrorizing people through the country. There was this, it just felt like things were on fire. And I really, I, I couldn't deal with that because, you know, being being black and uh, being in the UK and, and all of this sort of stuff, you, you get a sense of, of all this stuff. And sometimes it's just too much. And I didn't know what it would do to me. So I avoided that video. But when I finally watched it, it was just gut-wrenching. Uh, and everyone who's seen the video or, or watched the trial or all of that just knows how crazy that situation was and and sadly it it had been happening for so long but i think what happened is because we were all stuck in our houses there was no form of escape there was no way to avoid things the whole world really saw this situation for what it is and everything else that was going on around it because that video really erased a lot of ambiguity you just saw the ridiculousness of what was happening in that situation completely unnecessary and it just felt like suddenly we were all speaking the same language and everyone was ready to listen, ready to hear. And for myself and Anthony, we've been experiencing incidents of, of you know, uh, racism and, and stuff like that. But we, we just never known how to articulate it. We didn't have language. Uh, we didn't uh, really understand it too well ourselves. And that's the difficult thing about some of the racism you uh, experience in the UK, that it's it's um it's not very much in your face it's it's all the little things all the terms like microaggressions and all this sort of stuff we we'd experience these things and be like that feels off but i don't know why it feels off and trying to understand all of that um but for years we'd cared about this even in the work we made our work had always been uh, had a flavor of a political energy it was always about uh, you know fighting injustices uh, but because we didn't have the language, uh, and also we were, we didn't feel like audiences were really ready to be faced with the rawness of whatever we needed to say, there was a real distance and ambiguity to a lot of the work. You know, we always laugh and say how we'd, you know, uh, change the title of the work to a French word or a, a word of an African language that no one really knows, uh, just to add a bit of distance. And then you check the program note and it's all this very beautiful language, which is really just tried to avoid the crux of it. Uh, but May 2020 hit and we were like, look, we finally understand what we need to say. Uh, and feels like the world and audiences are really ready to hear this. Uh, so we just hit the ground running. And although it was COVID times, because we're living in the same house, we could carry on creating, we could carry on exploring ideas, carry on writing, choreographing. So we just you know, sort of went full speed ahead and uh, made a, a full-length work uh, called Geometry of Fear with the Mesom's Wiltshire. Uh, alongside that, we made a short film called Are You Numb Yet? Uh, and a feature film called Error Code. So all in that summer, um, we were, you know, pushing out content. But what happened is that um, uh, Mesom's Wiltshire live streamed 
that uh, performance, life performance of Geometry of Fear, uh, which caught the attention of Sadler's Wells, uh, who uh, Anthony had been working with. And you can explain that relationship uh, in a bit, Anthony. Um, but then uh, it was really perfect timing because Sadler's Wells were working with BBC at the time on a program called Dancing Nation, uh, which was basically a program so that the BBC and Sadler's Wells could show that even though we're going through COVID, uh, there's still people out there supporting art, supporting dance, supporting um, creativity. Um, and they asked us to be a part of that um, and to do a section from Geometry of Fear. Um, but for me and Anthony, we feel like being honest about this kind of work, um, the, the conversation is always evolving when you're dealing with work that deals with these themes. Um, and the difference to uh, what you're saying in May of 2020 is very different to when we did the program in January of 2021. Uh, the conversation is always evolving. So we decided, look, let's uh, title the work something new and uh, let's continue to move the conversation forward and say something new with it, uh, which is where Shades of Blue came uh, along uh, that title, um, which was done as an excerpt on BBC Dance and Nation uh, and has quickly grown uh, into this full-length work that we've now done on Sadler's Wells main stage uh, in Dance East in Ipswich and Royal Welsh College in Cardiff. Anthony, tell me about the impact of George Floyd for you. Yeah. Um, Realised that um, my pain uh, and my um, confusion about my my place in uh, British society wasn't a um, was an experience that I had to feel like was my own, um, and that there was a community out there who not only have been going through what I've been going through, but um, needed needed in many ways. Um, you need to realize that there was there was more of us that we realized that we're out there, um, and not only did people who were who looked like me were ready to support one another and hear each other and uplift each other, that there were many people within society who had our back, who were ready to listen, who were ready to protest, who were ready to go in the streets, who have been doing that for a long time. Um, it opened my eyes up to that and like Cal said about the language, because I've come to understand that it's very, it's very hard to notice or understand something if you don't have the language for it. Um, yeah, I was, I was with a friend yesterday and they were saying that the Portuguese don't have uh, a word for the, for, for line, you know? So, uh, when they start learning English, they, you know, they can't, they're like, what's a lime and what's a lemon? Because it's just like lemon and green lemon. And for them, it's so hard to understand what that simple thing is to me. Who I've I've grown up knowing the difference between a lemon and lime, but because the language isn't there, you can't identify what that thing is. Um, so in many ways, I, th th those feelings were cloudy. They were nebulous. What I was going through was very nebulous as a young British black man. But in that moment, something just clicked. Clicked in terms of the community that um, I was a part of, but also the global community, but also the outrage and the need to not be silent and quiet and to sort of sometimes uh, make work that's kind of about it, but isn't, but to go full steam ahead. Because 
what I what I watched on that on my phone, I just couldn't believe it was real. And mm. I needed I needed to I needed for me in that moment I was like the world needs to know that this is real. This is real. What people are going through is real. If this has been caught on camera, what else hasn't been caught on camera? You know, there's many, many stories out there and there's many people out there who are suffering, who need a voice and who need a sense of community. But above all of that, the first thing was an extraordinary amount of pain. I don't think I've cried over a video or I think I was shocked at first. I couldn't even cry. I was so shocked. And I think I just cried in silence and, and in the dark because I was like, what the hell? What is going on with everything that was going on with COVID? And it just felt like Cal said the world was on fire. Um, but yes, lots of, lots of, lots of different things, lots of coming of age and coming to understand my position and coming to own my blackness and own my, my Africanness and own my Welshness and own a lot of things that I was shamed for. There was a lot of, there was a lot of, um, a lot of things that were just getting clicked and turned on. Um, but yes, a, an extraordinary amount of grief and pain for someone I'd just known for at that time, eight minutes, 46 seconds. But I feel so connected to that, to that person, not just because of the moment and the global moment, but I've, I've never, I've never heard vocal cords, um, shout and scream for help like that. And I've, I've such a deep connection to my parents. And when he says, mama, that, that, that just like is ingrained in me and yeah it's um for me what was also upsetting was how people some people were trying to defend um the means of of which of which the officer took and how some people was trying to deny it and say it's a fake video and all of that that to me just outraged me and i was you know uh i just i just felt like we had to get that story out and many of the other stories out there but yeah, a, a tremendous amount of grief and pain um, and a, a lot of loneliness, which then turned out to be, you're not, you're not, you're not alone. There are lots of people out there who want to talk and who want to have conversations and also just extremely inspired by the way some arts organizations decided enough is enough and let's be brave. Let's trust that our audience will still come. If it's not the Nutcracker, it's Shades of Blue, they will still come. And, to me, I've I've been really thankful to the sector that you know they held themselves accountable and said we need to put more of this work out there. So these two incredibly powerful, impactful moments in 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 your life, the murder of your older brothers in 2015, and then the experience around the death of George Floyd in 2020, sparked an activism but then sparked a real clarity around the work that you needed to do. So Anthony, paint a picture of what is Shades of Blue and what is the message, the story that comes through that piece? Um, I feel like uh, Shades of Blue has a three-sided coin. <laughs> um, it has one side that shows um, the joy the intelligence, the power of the youth of today. Um, and then it has a side where it strips away that 
uh, that joyfulness, that openness, that playfulness, that sense of community because of the structures we have right now that are oppressing these young people and how young people in many ways are quite literally losing their voice. Um, with all the, you know, with all the laws getting passed to suppress um, protests and all of these things, just speaking to young people and how they feel like they'll not be hurt. There's a lot of that. Um, and then there's another part about um, what that does, but also what does that do to you? It puts the, it puts the question in the, in the viewer, is this trauma porn? You know, are, are you going to keep watching these stories, clapping for them, going on your feet, going to, going to the, the lobby or the bar after the show and saying, that was great, having your pino and going home and not doing anything about it? Um, it questions uh, how we view theater and how we view trauma on stage for the audience. So it is not an answer. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is a series of, 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 of questions and provocations that leave you as the viewer to make your choice. Um, uh, one of the most powerful things that we never expected is at the end of Cal's epic monologue. He's, he starts asking, are you numb? Are you numb? And he's done this monologue, right? And we've never, even in the studio, we've never said no or yes. And you just heard the audience. No, no. Every time he kept answering, it was not meant to be an audience participation uh, bit, but you saw you saw what the power of theater can do when you pose the truth and you actually ask genuine questions. Um, so it is that. And it's also for me, it's a way to not to wrap up and move on, but it's a place where I can find sanctuary in the pain that I would, I've gone through in dealing with this topic so heavily over the last two years. It's a place to put that somewhere so it doesn't just live and corrode me because it's very hard to stay in that world for a long time. Um, and it's also something that I think people who feel oppressed or feel like they're, they're losing their sense of self can rediscover either their love of creativity, their love of, of theater, their love of dance, their love of family, community, friendship. I, I hope it can re-spark that in them, like re-spark the basic emotions that we experience that often we don't allow ourselves to experience joy, laughter, sadness, pain, all of this stuff that we always try and just stay on one continuous level. So it's, 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 it's many things and it has, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, excuse me for the pun, but it has many shades to it, you know, uh, it has really a lot of shades to it. It's not one particular thing. Um, but yeah. And, and Kel, you didn't have an all black cast for shades of blue. It wasn't a piece that you wanted to speak just to the black community. Yeah, um, absolutely. There was uh, conversations about that, about the casting of it and, and who would be in this work. Uh, and we decided that um, we were going to make the cast just as uh, diverse as possible and just go with our instincts um, in, in terms of the people we audition and, and go with the people we feel just want to fight for whatever injustice they've experienced uh, in their lives. And, you know, the way we sort of go about picking the people we want to work with is we go with for the people with the biggest hearts, although that may sound cheesy or whatever, but we really go for the hearts because when you're dealing with work like this, uh, you need a lot of heart, uh, a lot of vulnerability, a lot of support, a lot of laughter as well. Uh, a lot of people, they see our work, they're like, whoa, studio must be crazy intense. And we're like, no, we're having a laugh. We're having the greatest time because 
you know, it's in our nature. We like to enjoy ourselves as human beings, especially when we're doing something we love, um, while still also balancing that we are dealing with a very serious topic and honoring the people and the stories we're telling. Uh, but in that, we have to protect ourselves as people and um, approach it with heart, with love, with joy, with laughter. And that's how we go about picking people. So the casting was very open and very free. And we also felt like it needed to be diverse because we wanted Shades of Blue to be a real picture of society. Uh, these are very few spaces that are completely black or completely uh, East Asian or completely white. Now we're, we're becoming this global village. And the thing is, if we just make it an all black cast, our audience members, we're going to invite all the people we know and we're going to have a mainly black audience and we're all just sat there just agreeing with each other which does nothing <laughs> it really does nothing um so we wanted that cast to be diverse we wanted a super diverse audience um as well as that because we live in a society and these issues affect us all they're not individual you know how you, you think about the black community or about uh, the tension between young people and the police that is not exclusive to one person it affects everyone and we need everyone to be involved in these conversations. Um, and we need that audience to be diverse. So we really loved it uh, at the end of the show that you'd see people going at each other about, oh, no, but that shouldn't have been, oh, but that was a bit much for me. And, oh, no, I love that. And th that's really what it's about, sparking the conversation, bringing different minds together. Um, I think that really had to start in the room uh, so that it spread out to the audience. And I think from my perspective, what happened with George Floyd murder was was this piece of, as you said before, clarity and the 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 loss of ambiguity. And for the non-black community, actually, that you had an outpouring of people across all, you know, ethnicities saying this is not okay. You know, this this is this has to change. And I think it's something that comes through really clearly in your work, that it talks to to people of all backgrounds, as you say, if, you know, it's not um a black cast and black audience agreeing with each each other. It's a diverse cast and a diverse audience all agreeing with one another, um, and 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 that's really powerful. A Anthony, if you watch Shades of Blue and that's all you'd seen of the Matt Senders, then maybe you think you know you guys are the kind of angry political guys, you know, talking about oppression or whatever. Is that you? Is that it's it? a part of me, but it's not all of me. Um, uh, a lot of bees, a lot of laughter, a lot of silliness, a lot of joy, um, a lot of love for the, the for the art of creating. Um, I, I just love. I've I've I have a lot of interest, and they they don't just sit within politics. These are the these other things in life that interest me equally uh, as well as well as that. So, you know, I I don't want to spend my whole life um, making work that is just political. I think um, I would say work will always be political in some sense, but not it being the driving force. Um, you know, I had one of the most fun times directing um, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream alongside Cal and Jonathan Mumby early in the year. And a lot of people who came and watched that were like, what did you really read on that? Because that that's not really you guys. I'm like, well, yes, it is. It is. <laughs> it totally is. So um, it is in all of that. And I think actually reflected on Shades of Blue when I think the first version of Shades of Blue seemed like angry political guys. But there's a lot of playfulness and silliness in this version that especially is at the beginning 
that I hope people maybe who hopefully remember the whole piece see that these different tones to 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 the kind of work we want to make. So yeah, you know, I I'm not just the angry angry political guy. Um, I am I have, I have, I have many other interests in life um, that I want to explore in many different creations, and I hope that the industry. Um, especially the Arts Council, doesn't expect that from pe- people of um, the global majority that they have to make work that uh, reflects uh, their, their societal position in, in Britain, that they can be free to make whatever work they want to make because they're great makers, um, not because of the color of their skin or their background. Okay, what's your what's your reflection on the journey ahead for you guys? Oh, the journey ahead. Um, we're just going to carry on just um, following our instincts and carry on exploring things we're passionate about. I mean, myself and Anthony are real geeks. We we love science and mathematics and equations and sequences. And we want to explore that in, in a creative space more and, and bring that through because uh, that's what we were exploring in the early days. And, you know, the activist in us was, uh, uh, you know, awakened. But we still want to explore all those other things. And yeah, when, if something comes on that we feel really affected by politically and we want to speak on that, you know, we'll, we'll follow that instinct too. But um, it's not the only thing we're interested in. And um, you know, going forward is, is really tr- trying to understand how we can um, really understand how to communicate dance on, on d- digitally, really through film and, and through uh, television and all of that. It's still a very new age in terms of how dance is put on uh, film and screen. Uh, obviously, with acting, we've it's been going on for such a long time. Opera is getting very good on film because they've had sort of three, four decades now trying to understand the medium. And for myself and Anthony, we really want to be spearhead in that of understanding how we communicate dance through a screen. Uh, so those that's part of uh, the next journey for us is still rocking out on stage um, and also on screen. One more big question, and I'd love to get both your perspectives on it. Can I come to you first? If you could port yourselves back in time to Zimbabwe and meet Anthony and Kel, aged 11 and 14, before you moved over to Wales and had an opportunity to put your arm around the shoulder and say something in their ear, what would you say, Kel? Oof. Uh... Yeah, uh, that would be. Um, I think if I if I got to speak to to my younger self, um, I, I very much remember being really young, um, and the ground was constantly shifting uh, for us from you know sort of just after the early two thousands. Um, you know, my my mom's work, my dad's work, uh, us moving country, um, us trying to figure out we're in between two places. Okay, we have. African heritage, but then now we're in this place in Wales, and there was just constantly uh, things shifting. And in that, what was really difficult is when you're jumping from community to community, place to place, is you can really see some people who are settled in their community. You can really see um, certain people living a life that looks somewhat structured, you know. And and I remember uh, being quite jealous of that, being completely honest of seeing that some people were able to plan ahead and have a path for their life because things were following some sort of some sort of step, some sort of order. Uh, but for us, it felt like we don't know what was going to happen next week, what was going to happen next month. And 
uh, that was something that uh, I really struggled with at first. But I think I tell my younger self that, look, everyone's journey is unique. Um, and from a distance, it may look like someone's life is just really lovely and perfect and, you know, rose tinted glasses, but everyone has their own hardships. Uh, you don't know what's going on behind closed doors. Um, so, uh, you know, there's this quote I love from drama school for in my very first week, our head of acting, Paul Clarkson said, um, I think it's a quote from Roosevelt that, um, uh, comparison is the thief of joy. And I think comparison stole quite a lot of joy in my younger years. Um, and still, and can very much steal jo your joy as a creative, as an actor, as a dancer, if you're constantly comparing your journey. And, um, uh, I tell myself to just invest in my uniqueness because my uniqueness is exactly why I'll be able to affect the lives around me. Um, so yeah, I think I tell my younger self that it's going to be all right. Uh, just, uh, focus on you and what's going on around you. Anthony, if you were ported back in time to talk to your younger self what would you say uh i'd put a shoulder around him and give him a little knuckle scratch on the head and say hey knucklehead uh stop stop being so uh stubborn at times uh but no seriously um yeah i think uh, my younger younger years i was in such a a loving environment that i never felt uh, I always felt like I could try anything, even if I wasn't good at it, I would just give it a go. Um, and because the stakes had gone up so high when we moved and I was about to move, felt like whatever choice I had to make had to be the right choice. Uh, so often getting, getting in my way before I've even had the chance to experience something, uh, I would tell that person that, look, you always want to have the option to say no because you've tried it. Um, you know, if something intrigues you in any kind of way, Go and find out why. Um, if it feels unrelated to what you're doing or your journey, it's, it's there's probably some sort of thread that's going to help you excel in the journey that you're on right now. So go out there and just give it a go. Give it a go. And remember that song you used to sing to yourself when you were much younger, when things would go terrible. Tony, don't worry about a thing. Yeah. Because <laughs> every little thing. And yeah, as a kid, I would sing that to myself when I'd get really mad or I'd get sad. Uh, but I would say, just always give yourself the option and know that no matter how how dire and how nasty or how um, how dark a hole you find yourself in, um, know that you you make you make your way out of it not because you're brilliant and you're doing it by yourself but because of the people around you trust in them uh ask for help uh, uh ask them to lend you a hand and uh you know they will come to your saving and remember the last thing that uh the traumatized are unpredictable because they know they can survive and you are unpredictable because you know you can survive and never forget that i love it it's so powerful so what's next for you in 2022 what are we going to see from matt sainer productions coming up um, through the next six months to a year or so uh so uh ken and i are doing a few solo projects um i'm doing uh commission 
at the place at the moment at my old dance school, which is like a big, big uh, come around moment. I've always wanted to do the graduation piece. I think that was one of my stamps of approval that I'm a choreographer is if I did, if I did this. So really enjoying that. Carol's going to come assist at some places. So the shows will be on from the 5th to the 8th of July. Um, and then I'm also doing a massive Pan Wales project, um, which is part of the Unbox Festival. Our team is Collective Cymru and the project is called Gallowood Call to Action, which is a, a transmedium um, story that's going to take place over radio, live performance, and on a massive broadcasting channel, um, and it, in many different forms over a whole week. So watch out for that in the last week of September. Uh, and then Masada Productions is going to continue uh, building a really thick and epic tour and a slightly buffed up version of Shades of Blue. We're on version 4.063080 uh, by this point, uh, but that will be coming to you uh, around the UK, around Europe, around uh, America. We're going to make it happen because people need to see the story. And hopefully in Zimbabwe, um, we'll, we'll try and make that happen. Um, and then uh, we'll also be working on a series of short films um, that uh, we're going to start filming uh, towards the end of this year and releasing to you. And then there's some other projects that, hey, uh, there's something called signatures to contracts that keep you keep your mouth zipped up. Uh, we, can't, we can't speak on them, but there's a lot coming your way. Don't you worry. Mm-hmm. And Cal, you're saying the project? Oh, yes. And uh, I'm currently working on a video game and I can't say what it what it is, but um, that is very fun and strange to be in my very tight <laughs> gray suit with all the sensors. Um, but yes, that's what I'll be getting up to uh, for part of this summer um, and uh, a film uh, as well as that. Uh, I've just finished writing my play supported by National Theatre Wales. Uh, so I'll be uh, doing some R&D for that this autumn. Um, and cracking on with that. Um, I'm very excited uh, to really get into that too. Um, and again, uh, working on all the short film series and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, a whole lot of uh, pen to paper, well, keyboard, really, a whole lot of writing and stuff. But uh, yeah, it's an exciting um, final half of this year. And if people want to follow you, where can they find you on, on social media and so on? Oh, Facebook, Instagram, you find us at Matsena Productions, uh, at Twitter, we're Matsena Prod, uh, because Twitter doesn't allow you to have a very long name. <laughs> so it's at Matsena Prod. And then uh, check out our website too, Matsena Productions. Um, and then our personals are there as well. On Instagram, I'm Kel Matsena. Um, and you guessed it, Anthony. Un- Anthony underscore Matsena. The underscore is very important. We'll put all those links in show notes so people can find you and follow you and find out about this incredible stuff that you're filling your diaries with. I think you're, you're some of the busiest people in, in the entertainment industry at the moment, so, so it's fantastic. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For breakthrough contemporary dance choreographers, performers and actors, Anthony and Kel Matsena, it was the tragic death of two of their older brothers that shifted the focus of their work and awoke a clarity of purpose in them around activism, telling stories and impacting real change. The murder of George Floyd sparked the creation of their most powerful piece to date, Shades of Blue, but also reinforced the importance of bringing the values of love, joy, empowerment and community through their performances to audiences around the world. They're so young and so very talented. I'm incredibly excited to see what the Matsena brothers are going to go on and create over the coming years. Anthony and Kel, 
Thank you so much for joining me today on the Unlock Moment. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. This has been the Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotas. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset, available in physical book, ebook, and audiobook formats. Follow me on Instagram and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Join me again soon.